Welcome to the Consciouspreneur Podcast, where we discuss and apply the principles of mindset, leadership, and business building strategies that align with our purpose, honor the people we work with, and generate a sustainable profit. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Consciouspreneur podcast. My name is Dr. Mary Maduna Gross, and today we're speaking with Daniel Matalon. Daniel is the founder of Is There Enough? A provocative new conversation about the intersection of survival economics and social justice and the co-founder of Impact Launchpad, a UK-based venture studio for social impact investment, incubation, and development. Daniel, thank you so much for setting time aside for this conversation today. I've been really looking forward to it because the theme and the expression about a conscious entrepreneur, you know, is a really interesting question because my question is, what is a not conscious entrepreneur? (laughs) And what is the distinction between the two? And in one way or another, I've been thinking about that question, perhaps not formulating it like I have today for, for some 30 years. And, and I definitely see a lot of people out in the world who, who think about that question like yourself. So this is something I've been really looking forward to. That's exciting. I, I love being able to talk about what this is and in, in the contrast, what is it not, right? What are we moving away from? And I, I think that um, COVID and all of the disruption that we experienced as a result of COVID really showed us that a lot of the rules that we think we have to live by are not as necessary and important as we thought they were. Or maybe even the idea of rules themselves having the kind of impact that they have on us by the conditions changing and realizing that there's an opportunity maybe for new rules. Yes, yes, exactly. So I, that's why I see um, this conscious entrepreneur movement really being able to gather steam right now. Because prior to that, um, and I think you 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 talk about is it Buckminster uh, Buckminster Fuller? Buckminster Am I saying Fuller. That? Some people okay. call him Bucky. Some people affectionately call him Bucky Fuller. So okay. you can call him Bucky Fuller if Buck- you want to jump to the relationship thing right away. Okay. So so for, so one of the things I and I think it was him who said, you know, if you're building something new, you you can't fight the old. You just you have to create something new. It's more effective. He looked at it like an engineer would, which is really the opposite of a victim, you know, which we have a lot of victimhood in our society right now for in my worldview. And I think sometimes some of the balancing sort of engineering like questions about big possibilities allows you to think in those terms and exactly in those terms of wouldn't it be more sensible instead of taking the old system down, which requires blood treasure and time usually. Yes. Just build a new one and leave the old one there. And in fact, leverage off the old one. He also talked about in the details of this to leverage off of existing systems. You know, we, even ones that are enemies of us or ones that we think are deleterious to, to us, right? If we can leverage off of them, it's much faster than having to tear everything down. And my expression, um, I think part of the challenge of being a conscious entrepreneur is affecting the collaboration and agreement that's necessary for that to translate into things like transactions and measurements and so on and so forth. And, you know, our ledger of whether our awareness, consciousness is actually having any effect 
in my view, and this might not be the same language for everyone else, but in my view, that's a matter of how much agreement we can make. Sure. And I love it that, that this is the angle that you're taking. You know, as I've, I've looked at some of your materials, listened to some of your other podcasts and, and to try to wrap my head around what it is that you're doing, because it felt when you and I first met several months ago, I came away from that conversation like, oh my gosh, like this is so big. I don't even know how to wrap my head around. It's not clear. It's almost so big. It becomes kind of unclear at the same time, right? Exactly. Exactly. And so I, you know, I wanted to be able to wrap my head around it. So I'm listening to other conversations that you've had. I've looked looked at some of your uh, materials on your website. And I've, I've got to get to a question. And this is me personally. Before I, I get to the content, I really want to know what makes this so important to you? This, this whole conversation about agreement and, and how do we make uh, the world work for everyone? Why is that important to you? The, the short, non-sobby answer to a sob story is that at a certain point, I felt like I had no value. And so I did this instead. Interesting. That's pretty much the, the simple answer to a, to a big story, you know, of losing everything I had. And then, you know, it's one of those sort of boring comeback stories that, you know, we've heard thousands of times. Um but but it basically comes from that seed. And I didn't realize this because I'd been studying Buckminster Fuller amongst my other aspects of, of, of looking to affect social impact and business together for some 30 years. I've been studying Buckminster Fuller as part of that. And uh, But I also didn't recognize until later that somebody pointed out to me that Buckminster Fuller had a moment where he was you know, at the end of his life, because he had just a horrible set of circumstances, lost a child, you know, just was in a horrible place of despair. And he just came to this conclusion that he didn't have the right to throw away his life. But he said, I don't really want it. So what can I do with it? If I don't have the right to throw it away, I should use it as an example to see what one man can do on behalf of 100% of humanity. So obviously, I found my own way of like living my hero's <laughs> life you know, in a way that I wish that I hadn't because I wish I hadn't gone to that depth of despair. But that's basically where it comes from. And, and I love I love it that you're willing to share that with us, because I think that especially in this world where, you know, I'm going to point to social media and it's everything's good and great and wonderful and we really stay surface level. But at the at the root of it, we all come with pain and trauma. And I think it is from those experiences that we really ask ourselves, who do we want to be now? Am I going to stay in this pain and trauma or am I going to convert that into something um, for good? You know, as you know, like <clears throat> I'm a man of questions as much as a man of agreement, let's say from a branding and identity sort of perspective. And I spent a lot of time thinking, am I asking the best question in X or Y situation that I could be asking or that we could be asking? And, and what you just raised is for me, when I ask the question of why don't people apply what they learn? And I mean, really learn when they really get it, when they're at that moment, when they're in the seminar or reading the book or listening to the tape or some sort of experience, and then don't go out and apply that. And that's been a haunting question for me for more than 20 years. And one of the conclusions that I came to, which is going to be the first chapter of the book 
that will come out next year on this. And uh, basically, uh, what I came to the conclusion of is that we'll never do anything that's not within our identity. It doesn't matter if it makes more sense for us. We could die over the identity before we do the thing that's in our own interests, right? So if it all boils down to identity, and I'm not talking about ego here, I'm talking about identity, right? If it all boils down to identity as a non-psychologist, what works for me is to basically say that I am my history and I am my choices. Right. You and I already have a brief, but some history, and we also have our choices as a, as a team on this call. And uh, I think nations do and networks do and companies do and so on and so forth. And if we always remember that, we can honor our history and at the same time not be beholden by it. Right. Does this make sense? Right. right? It, it makes complete sense. Um, and, and again, I think I've heard you quote uh, or reference Joe Dispenza. And Joe Dispenza talks about, and I know there's others too, but talks about by default, we're going to relive our history over and over and over again. When we bring awareness or consciousness to our history, now we have choices. Do I want to continue to live by these rules or do I want to create a new vision for myself? Yes. Yes. And he says we are our choices and he is absolutely correct because that history we're talking about is a bank of choices that were already made, right? And this is why I think, and it's just the way that I, you know, have rearranged my worldview is that we're carrying around 70,000 years of PTSD in our, like our bodies, in our Our DNA. DNA. Right. Yes. So for you and I to wake up in the 21st century and say, no, we're going to be peaceful. We're not going to be warriors. Like, good luck with that. Like, that's like telling an alcoholic that they stop drinking, that they're not an alcoholic in my view. Right. So I'm thinking about like if bobbing for apples made a reason not to have to have conflict, I'll bob for apples. It turns out that the thing that makes it less necessary to have conflict is to make agreement, like to make that the highest pursuit possible. Like if you really care about war, pursuing your own life's trajectory towards as much agreement as you can suffocates war the way that oxygen suffocates cancer. That's how one-to-one I think that it is. And so these conversations we're engaging in around the is there enough question is getting people to examine what that word enough even means, not scarcity and abundance. You know, thank you for those words. It's about enoughness. And when when you and I really examine that, the way you're going to see enough, and I am, is going to be based on our worldview, which is always going to be different. Just like our algorithm feeds are different, and that's to be honored. From those worldviews, we can still make agreements, which are back to history and choices. Agreements are choices we make together. So, of course, it's transactional. I have to have an agreement to get paid my contract, you know, on my client, converted into a monthly subscription, whatever my business model. There's a series of agreements there. But not only is there a set of agreements before that agreement, there's also the agreements afterwards based on the expectations that the customer has, which is just as much an agreement in their mind as the one you have on a piece of paper. Right. And becoming an artist focus about these detailed pieces of the whole rich tapestry that it requires to create agreement redolent throughout the relationship. This is really what establishes you as a superstar in your field. Right. And especially now in the 21st century. And so both from a business standpoint, but even just from a basic human standpoint of war and peace, 
We think peace is a byproduct of agreement. And the human beings are very bad at agreement, just like the alcoholic. And so we have to practice some language to bend us towards agreement instead of conflict, which we think is rather automatic from that PTSD. So that's what we're searching to do with our conversation. And that's what we have done to the degree of you and I being here to talk about it. Yeah. Well, you know, again, um, when we're talking about consciousness, to me, that's awareness. And how aware am I of what's really driving how I see the world, the decisions I make about what I'm seeing and and what actions that I want to take? And, you know, so again, as I've been thinking about this conversation, one of the things that I've been thinking about, and I'm not going to be able to quote the title of the book, but there was a book about our unconscious mind and how it develops. And, and the author goes back to basically prehistoric, um, humans. And while uh, on the one hand, humans needed one another for safety and security, we also saw other humans outside of our tribe. That was our biggest threat. That was our biggest threat. And so what I take away from that is that at, at our core, again, at our DNA, we're designed to be tribal. Yes. And it could threaten the entire tribe of humanity if we don't figure out a way to address this. It, it, I, exactly. So I think we're at this space now, you know, in our human development where we are willing to ask ourselves, is there enough? What else is possible? Um, and I think there's enough people that are really examining and becoming personally conscious and aware of themselves that collectively we can make that impact. Can I share with you the, sorry, go ahead. Did you? I no, didn't no, no, no. Go ahead. Share. I was going to, I was going to add on to what you're saying to share with you there. There's basically three responses. If you ask somebody the question of, is there enough? It's usually, it's usually almost all the time. Is there enough? What? Like we didn't finish the sentence. We human beings don't tolerate ambiguity all that well, and it would be good if we did, right? We don't have to know the answers right away. Sometimes the percolation on the question, if it's an appropriate question, is super effective um, for neuroplasticity and growth and all that stuff. Sometimes, um, likely people who would listen to this podcast, I would think, if I asked them if they're enough, they'd go, of course, because we're steeped in that there really is abundance and we just have to wait until the rest of the world is conscious like we are. That's the barrier. And therefore we focus on education and so on and so forth, which is fair as a response, right? The thing is, is we, again, I say this humbly and I'm accusing myself in this regard. I think we sometimes set up an inadvertent war or tribal issue between people who are conscious and people who are not conscious. And if you need any more evidence, you just look at what's been done with the word woke. Exactly. Okay. Where we've turned consciousness and awareness into a swear word. Right. So I think what it boils down to as best as I can figure out is I think what we're really after is transformation. Yes. And in order to have transformation, you need awareness, for sure, consciousness, and you need demonstration. It's not sitting back and folding our arms and waiting till the rest of the people catch up with us. We have to go out and demonstrate. And demonstrating is hard because you're going to make mistakes and you're going to fail. There's risk involved. If you think about what we don't have enough of in the world, it's enough safety. So there are people like who might be listening to this who might go, well, yes, there is enough, but 
<laughs> it's a distribution problem or whatever it is. And that's where the conversation really moves to because it allows us to properly examine the conditionality and situationality of enoughness. It allows us to go, well, what would it take to have enough? Like if you go, well, yes, there's enough. Sometimes I go, well, what would it take for everybody to have access to it? And then that becomes the conversation. Sometimes somebody said they all have access to it. And I said, okay, what would it take for us to inspire more participation in what they have access to and that is there? And however you want to take it, there's something more we need to do in order to either create enough or create enough access to enough because it exists. Anything else is a failure. And we need as many failures as we can get until we can succeed at doing it, of figuring out how do we make the world work for as close to 100% of humanity as we can get to in our lifetimes. It's like our mandate. It's our, it's our, it's our, it's the reason we live is, is what I would say now. I mean, I told you what it was for me personally was it made me get out of bed in the morning that other things didn't, but, but it's really more about I mean, we can really evolve society on a singular individual way. I, I'm uh, saying in some writing that in order for it to work for all, it has to work for each, right? <clears throat> the individuality in the evolution of our species to a patho pathological problem when we get all the way to um, you know, beyond narcissism and even, you know, pathology and stuff like that, we've somehow allowed in nature the development of those individually focused brains, which means we carry some of it within each of us, right? Like, let me give you an example of how to tie this to something practical. If you wanted to get more people to vote in the United States, what if you paid them all a hundred bucks for doing it? Would cost less than two and a half percent of the U.S. federal budget. And I think you could argue most people would think that's a very good outcome, you know, that it would increase, right? Well, that's capable of being done if there's enough agreement, obviously, to do that. So it isn't the money to do it. It's the agreement to do it. Where does the agreement come from, ultimately, is the people, even though everybody's conspiracy theory is that they're a victim and they have no power. Think about it, right? Coalitions agreements, all of those things are what really, really make change happen. So our focus is, is couldn't you just have a laser focus on whatever it takes to build agreement in the world? And ours is one of a thousand flowers should be blooming out there. Braver angels in America doing extraordinary stuff. The empathy tent that um, I've forgotten the name of the founder. There's so many wonderful things going on responding to this. We're all tired of the, the hate and the tribalism and and the fakeness of the news, right? And so uh, if we can establish a value around agreement, not just thinking of agreement as a transaction, an orientation like hunting for it, you know, digging for it, and that means conversing for it. In the examination of enough and not enough is sort of a way, you know, to get to that. But any sort of conversation that can allow some understanding, if not outright love for our neighbor, is kind of good for business, if you think about it, you know? Absolutely. So to that end, uh, we created a product, and I'll just throw that out there. Um, we've created a product around this concept where we're going to basically issue certificates to people for committing their focus to the single concept of agreement. And that's what our treaty is. 
since we, you and I are agreeing that we have this PTSD of 70,000 years, well, maybe this might be a way to put expression, symbolic expression into something that becomes actual constitution of humanity. And so we're offering a treaty of humanity. And as far as we know, it's the only treaty of humanity. Every other treaty has always been about nations. This is a treaty of everybody. So another challenge that I've thought about as I've considered this is um, I use an assessment that kind of measures our um, point of view, our perception, how we see the world. And as I think you would agree, the way I see it is the way I'm going to experience it. And at the lowest level, there's the the victim that is apathetic and believes that doesn't matter what they do, it, they can't make a, make a difference. And so they do nothing. Um, level two, though, is the fighter. Um, so level one, people believe I lose, you lose, we're all losing. Level two is I'm going to win, but for me to win, you have to lose. And most people who, who take this assessment fall into this category where I'm going to win, which means you have to lose. And I'm wondering, like, how do, when, when I'm talking about agreement, I think that most people would feel at their gut that if I'm going to agree with you on something, especially if it's a topic that I'm we're not lose. all right, we're not close, I'm going to lose. Right. And there's part, right, that, that, that human animal part of me that says, I'm not going to let myself lose. I'm not going to be so weak to come to an agreement. Just for the sake of agreement. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. yeah so it's like, how do we do that? the same thing when people tell you, but what you're also, what you're also speaking out loud also is that just telling everybody we need to love each other has the same impact because if I love you and you're hateful, I could get hurt. Yeah. That's kind of right. a re-expression of what you just said. Right. Yes. And, and so where, where I'll agree with you is what we're talking about with agreement here isn't at the compromise of your values and your tribe even it's about you maintaining those val as values and a little less control over the implementation of it. Like don't, you should defend those values and that history and that tribe and everything else. Right. But the values that you express have to be highest. And one of them, I think that's good to know, see, because we can both share the value of fairness, let's say. And yet from our worldview, we might define fairness in a different way. It doesn't mean you and I can't have a very valuable agreement around the incredible importance of fairness and then go to our disagreements about the things about what actually implements it. We have six core conversations published on our website, isthereenough.org, if people find it. And one of them is sameness before difference, right? A second one is values before positions. So we've been able to bring people together in a conversation on abortion where people have very different positions and have them discover that they both value human life with people that they would never imagine, particularly people who call themselves pro-life. They could never think of somebody as pro-choice as actually caring about life. And we have seen, we have seen some transformation on that conversation in our, in our halls, let's say in our rooms and in, in work we've done, it's really impressive to us too. Like, yeah. um, <laughs> you know, it's just the most divisive conversation because you're defending the baby, right? It's, it's the most core tribe thing that there is for those who, who look at it from that policy position. Um, and so this is what we're really injecting into the language is if we can agree on values first, 
then we can have rigorous debates on how to get there. This used to be how it was once upon a time, and I'm speaking at a political level, but we now need it in ordinary everyday conversational level. I think that everyday human beings are the real ones governing right now. Some of us know it and some of us can't imagine that, but we are the ones really governing and we have technology to really govern with. So that means we have a responsibility for us to focus on these values and the number one value that I happen to be focused on right now and I ask people about is, I know I know it's crazy to have to ask it, but does truth matter? Hmm. That has to be asked right now. Does, that does yeah. truth matter? Is it a value for you? I mean, how high a value is it for you? Is, is it matter that if you ran into something that was different than your true belief? that you could physically see in front of you, what are you going to do under those circumstances? You're going to hold on to your belief that you now know is false, or are you going to go for truth even when it's uncomfortable? Because at the end of the day, this is all about integrity, right? And it's all about it trust. Is. I, yes, absolutely. And I was just going to say, we all have those. Um, we have to ask ourselves that question. What is truth? Throughout our day, it's not just the big questions politically, and it's just not on the big stage, right? But it, it, and that's why I was so excited about this conversation because I love the big picture of, of where you're, you're taking your organization. But, but I, it would be easy for me to say, oh, well, it's too big. I, I can't possibly contribute to this, um, effort, you know, being at that lowest level. So, which sounds eerily similar to somebody saying, "My vote doesn't matter." By the way, yes, it, yes. it does. I, I, I will just feed with what you're talking about to let you know in our discovery of this because it was intended to sort of pose a big question to the world. But um, a lot more people than not have reinterpreted this question to how to make my world work, not just the world, right? So it is very personal, and I and the most. Remember where I started from this when you asked me about my story and um, the most common response in 22 countries, uh, thousands of hours of examination has been, am I enough? Am I enough? Followed by, are we enough? Right? Like the way it can be for a nation or a network. That's the real question because if everything's out there and we have the capability to support 10 billion people on this planet, not eight and more, and people have more value than they do consume. The idea that there's too many people means you believe that people are more consumers than they are providers. That's just not borne out by history at all. Not at all. Okay. Um, and so we can support all that, but are we enough up to that? And can I do my little part if I think it's a little part? Because a little part is not zero. Right. And that's what this really comes down to is, are you willing to engage in conversation to create more agreement, even if it's in your own self-interest, or if you want to get the ball rolling of people having something seriously to replace, to replace war with? This, this conversation is so much fun. Um, <laughs> yeah, it is. You've done a lot of so, prep for it. So when we're talking about making the world uh, work for everybody... Or work for me. I want to use it to work for me. Either one. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I guess I would. Uh, I think that's an important distinction uh, because we may not automatically assume that if it's make working for everyone, I would consider myself part of everyone. But I think even our language, though, 
we we are we're still in that word. That's right. Still separating. I'm still me. There's everyone else is outside of me. No doubt. No doubt. I mean, it's it's like you've pointed out throughout this conversation. On some ways, it's hard to grasp the bigness of it. And at the same time, it's very attractive to see how it can be. And I think it's kind of in between. It's like it's like an each one teach one thing, each to his own vision and capability. But there is no limit to it, provided you get the agreement for it. And let me be specific as a business person is the I, I'm a social impact investor. Um, I have a studio, you know, uh, out of the UK that you mentioned in your introduction and so on. And we have a big, big ambition for a global impact investment bank. Okay. That people love and existed before there was a conversation of, is there enough? And whenever people heard about it, they would go, wow, that's so incredible. I hope you can pull it off. (laughs) Interesting. So more as an observer than a participant. Yeah, because it was so big, people didn't think anybody could pull it off. It wasn't just really, you know, it's a fair thing for them to question. You want to question everything, right? Right, right. And our response has always been, well, we can if we can get enough agreement to it. Because a bank is, frankly, a set of agreements, right, <clears throat> at the end of the day. And that's what we've proceeded to to go about. And my point of raising it as a story is simply saying there's truly no limit to your vision provided you can get enough agreement. It won't solely be on how well you prepare yourself, on how many books you read, on how many seminars you attend, you know, all of the thinking that you do, which prepares you for the opportunity. But at the end of the day, if people aren't getting what you're putting out, you haven't figured out a way to make agreement. It could be the wrong people. It could be the message. It could be the thing you're working on. It could be lots of different things. You're just getting a tap on the shoulder. But, you know, a rocket on the way to the moon, I think, is like 94% of the time off track and the gyroscope is always bringing it back in. That's what all of these attempts are. These demonstrations that I'm saying are missing for transformation, not just awareness and consciousness, right? But actual demonstration. We need to have an environment in which it's safer for people to take risks and people taking the individual commitment to take some risks. It takes a little bit of risk to adopt what we're talking about, a treaty of humanity. Won't a nation be against that? And won't won't these guys stop you from this and that? And all the, you know, due diligence questions, I'm not trying to diminish them, right? But it's at the end of the day, if you ask me what there's not enough of, there's not enough courage to step out before everybody else has. It is about courage, but it's also about vision. And and what I was hearing you say um, is really, do we want to rely again on our history? So all of the questions, our due diligence, all of those questions are based on our history. And the, yeah. with the, yeah, would you agree that it's with the expectation that what we're experiencing now is basically the same that we've experienced before, hasn't worked before. So why is now the right time? Why, why am I the right person? So interesting that you bring this up because <clears throat> when we talk about history and choices, a lot of times the due diligence questions are about avoiding mistakes of the past. Mm-hmm. But if we approach due diligence, and we tend to think that we're a little bit somewhat experts of due diligence, we have a couple of hundred pieces of intellectual property related to due diligence on our business side when we mentor or develop projects, things like that. Um, But we pride ourselves on doing opportunity analysis before we do checking analysis. That's far more important, right, from an implementation standpoint. 
you can sometimes take a business that doesn't quite have it together and another one doesn't quite have it together. And you've talked to both of them and you can bring the two of them together with another piece of management and some capital and boom, an idea just became a thing. Again, all by what? Our friend, agreement. Agreement is what makes wealth. What we were talking about before we got on the air, uh, I think you and I were, were talking about how in our parents' time, our grandparents' time, they chased as much money as they could so that they could buy what we would call wealth, right? And it's really about, I think today in the 21st century, it's about how to build wealth in a monetizable way. <laughs> it's sort of the thread of the needle, right? You don't have to wait to accumulate cash to then go buy wealth. You can create wealth, but you have to first define what that is. And I think that Bucky Fuller would define it in a way that I would reinterpret as survival over time. And if okay. you have survival handled and you want better than survival, it just means you have more choice than bare survival. And so whatever you can do to increase choice for anyone around you, for your clients, for the people who work with you, for your spouse, <laughs> whatever you can do to create choice for others tends to bring in a lot of choice for you because you become valuable. And then people want to help your choices. This is not fantasy, magic, secret, you know, video stuff, which I love the secret, by the way. It's not, it's not just focusing on attracting it to me. It's really looking at what is value based on. And I've had this conversation with a uh, kindergarten class when I was challenged to do it in, an, in a place where I would have been embarrassing to say no. So I had to go do it. And, and it's understood by the end of our 10, 15 minutes together um, that uh, they're not getting ahead in life by whether they're the prettiest, fastest, or whose father drives the nicest car. It's going to be based on their value to each other. And I introduced this word called agreement um, and tied it to money in the economic system. Boom, boom, boom. They got it in like 15 minutes. And, uh, and I think this is really the very, I mean, it's not uncommon for people hearing me speak about these things to say that I'm just giving words to things that are basically obvious. So guilty as charged. Um, but, but it is very obvious to say that wealth is produced by agreement, not resources. And yet we focus on resources as if they're the wealth when the human beings are the wealth, because who makes the agreements, not the resources the human beings do. So from my standpoint, we don't have enough people on planet earth. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I, and I'm an okay. climate reality activist speaking here. <laughs> and that statement is coming in the same week when we're hearing about, you know, um, the population growth is, is now at 8 billion. And um, yes. I forget what, you know, what percentage People of growth that raises. Now. Yes. Yes. Well, and I, and I like what you said earlier about that is that when we see that as a problem, we're saying that's a problem because people are consumers. They're not adding value. And I, okay. So let me run with this a little bit. So yeah, I love to talk about this. So if we're consumers, to me, that goes back again to even this conversation about wealth. And when you were describing what is wealth, the first answer that popped into my head, wealth is power. And so why do I, why did our parents and my grandparents' generation want to create wealth? They wanted to have power, which meant they had choices. That's right. Right. I mean, so I think, again, that's that idea of sameness. We're all, we all want choices. And when you use power, there are people listening to your voice right now that think of power, you know, based on our history 
as held by some and most don't have it. Exactly. Exactly. It's the ultimate, is there enough? And I would gently invite a re-examination of the word power to be the ability to get things done. Let's not over mystify it, right? You have some or more power based on what ability you have to get what things done. That's what we mean by power. And it's a little bit more of a spectrum than just thinking of some, you know, people in a corner, you know, calling the shots kind of stuff. And it's really important that we recognize our conversation as a ripple effect with other people that take it in other directions much further, even to violence, right? And I will say that uh, thinking that 8 billion people is too many on the planet means which ones are you going to start selecting that shouldn't be on this planet? That's what's fed from that. That's how important that falseness is, right? Because if you took all the 8 billion people on planet Earth and you stuffed them into as you know, tight a pack as you could, they would fit in the state of Florida. Huh. Okay. And <clears throat> if you ask about population and value and consumers and producers, have you ever, and I, I haven't, and I've looked with a team of people uh, in history and research, have we ever seen that a migration of people from one part of the planet to another part of the planet has caused the destination place where the influx came, has that ever caused an economic downturn in reality? Not, not the culture one saying that it would harm it economically. Can you show me one example in history where that actually happened? And the answer is no, because those people brought more than they consumed. They ended up creating economies out of it. Because what is an economy based on? It's based on people. When you have an economy that has too few people, your currency dives, right? You need lots of participation. And, you know, a conservative and a liberal can love this conversation because it's inclusive economics, which is good for business and good for justice, right? And so we have to re-examine what power is because if power is simply the ability to get things done, then I would recommend that if I had more agreement going on in my life, I can get more done than I could yesterday, right? And so if we all pursued it on that individual level, we would start to realize what was experienced in the Arab Spring where they were shouting out and saying on Facebook, the people have more power than the people in power. <clears throat> as far as I can see, and I've been looking at American politics since 1963, literally, um, <laughs> for, for another sort of strange story in my history, um, but, but American politics just demonstrated that the people have the power, that the people are driving the agenda and the leaders are following. So how about you get involved? And it doesn't mean you drive it politically necessarily. It could just be within, you know, your world. It doesn't have to be with the world. I've made my peace with that, <laughs> you know, because as I said before, it has to appeal to each, not just to all for it to work for hundred percent of humanity. That's what power is about. That's what we should Really question, is there a limitation on power? I do not see any evidence for that. I see unlimited power. It sort of occurs to me that this whole question about is there enough really gives us an opportunity, kind of like we we're talking about that awareness and that consciousness of, of my default patterns. I can keep going with my default patterns, stories, beliefs, all of those things, or I could consider new possibilities. And I think what that question does is opens the door for new possibilities, doing the trials, doing making the, the mistakes along the way, but learning something along the way with every one of those mistakes as well. 
So to me, that, that, that is kind of at the core, whether we're talking about it at a macro level globally or at a micro level individually, how am I going to, how am I going to perceive this? And respond to it even. How am I going to respond to it, right? This is responsibility. What is, I, what is my responsibility? What is my ability to respond to this? Which is exactly the opposite question of why can't I do anything about it? And why is people doing this to me? And, you know, this sort of thing. It's, a, it's an engineer's question because the real question of is there enough? And this is to reveal to you, you know, from, from research. And it's meant to be said second and not first. Is there enough has to be asked first. But the question hiding behind is there enough is what are we going to do about it? Mm-hmm. And the it in that sentence refers to whatever I think there's not enough of, which again is gonna be unique to each of us. But at the end of the day, if we have uh, not enough jobs in agriculture, ultimately we have to get to the, what What are we gonna do about it? There's gonna be lots of analysis on who caused it, what administration did this. You know, We spend so much time describing, describing, describing the problem, which is ultimately about laying blame for who caused it. And some of that needs to be done and some people need to be held accountable and justifications need to be done under law. I am fully behind that. But I think that you know, maybe 20 or 30% of our attention is best due there. And 70% of it is what are we gonna do about it at the end of the day now that that's happened? And we can do both at the same time. We can we can do our blame thing and our solution thing at the same time. You're right, because to me, again, that's looking at at our history and looking at our vision. What else is possible? Um, because when we only look one way or the other, we're we're missing the whole picture or a part of the picture. Yes, yes. And what's so fascinating about this, in my own discovery of this, having you know realized that everybody answers the question of is there enough in a completely different way, like like as I've sometimes said, like a fingerprint, um, is the recognition of how precious each individual's worldview is and what is lost when we lose one, you know? It's changed the way I look at when I see, you know, incidents there, 30 people died or two people died or whatever, and it's like each individual one is a whole world that just got lost, like a planet just got lost forever, as far as far as I can know <laughs> yeah. about how things work. So <laughs> <I'm sorry. laughs> I mean, there's a lot of conversation within us at the moment about in, in, in what ways are there some, uh, because we are so core about values, like in what way do we have something to learn from religion and stuff, which is not a comfortable conversation for me because I think, uh, you know, I want to appeal to every tribe. So I would never sort of think of any religion, even though I come from the Jewish religion. Um, but I but I think that understanding that the valuable parts of all religions in society is that we have had them be a channel of values. And at the ultimate day, whether it's a religion or Maslow's hierarchy or some aspect of, you know, how I look at, you know, 100% of humanity, there is a aspiration aspect to that, that has some practicality as well, which is what you were talking about. It's like, it's okay to fail at it or not do very much and just do little. It's not just success and failure. There's also like, oh, it's just a little bit. That can't really help very much. Whereas what I say to people is, if you ha- engage in this conversation, visit enough, which we actually teach people how to do, but to whatever degree they examine enoughness, it gets us to transcend scarcity and abundance. You tell people that are in lack 
that there's abundance and they need to wake up. It they feel like they're being told like they're stupid. Right, they're you know? wrong. I felt mm-hmm. that. I felt that mm-hmm. when I've been in lack and somebody's telling me that there's abundance. I'm I'm really trying to figure it out. <laughs> right. But we can right. manufacture trust uh, through agreement in an incremental fashion, and that's not that's not chicken feed. You know, to go from seventy thousand years to making a little bit of agreement. You know, that's a big big leap and a big contribution. Absolutely. This, this conversation has just been so exciting and and fun for me to engage in uh, that I hate to see that our time coming to a close here. So before we close, what, what are some resources that you can offer us? Maybe we've got a small role in this or maybe a medium or even a large role. How do we participate? So the, there's always the expression of those who are skeptical but want to follow us of letting the world know that they are uh, by obviously subscribing to our social media. It's quite significant here because we're expressing a voice of humanity. And so that's very material uh, uh, in this case, particularly. Um, our treaty is launched next year, but we're doing something special with people that are involved in our pre-registration drive. We intend to have 50,000 that sign on the very first day of release and making a very big deal about that. Um, And there's actually even some small but measurable economic incentives for each individual. I think I made this suggestion to you that if people were paid to vote in the American election, you'd get more participation. We've adapted that concept to the treaty. It's it's not a primary driver, but just to let you know that that there's some involvement there and people can pre-register for the treaty. And if they want to get our argument for why humanity even needs such a document, uh, we have something we call a survey, which basically has the is there enough conversation with them in a digital format. And uh, if they join us on Clubhouse, they can engage in conversation like you and I are having live. So that opportunity is there. Uh, And uh, if they want to support the assembly of all this into something a little bit closer to academic, the book that's coming out uh, next year, uh, they can be involved in the production of that. There's a role for people to play to learn from that. And then the thing I'll end with is I'll lay this promise to every entrepreneur listening to us. If you think that you personally being better at agreement might lead to more business than you have now, uh, we have a very simple 10-hour exercise that you can do where we can help you achieve that. Um, it's free of charge completely. There's nothing behind the wall or, you know, upsell. It's totally part of our social research is if you help us with our social research by helping us conduct the conversation with 10 people and then report back to us your experience, that's what we get out of it. Um, but what you'll get out of it is what we think of as a permanent upgrade in your agreement making capabilities <laughs> um, from the uh, learning experience you have of interviewing other people about this very simple question. Um, and, uh, so for those that want to, you know, really take that, uh, to some understanding, it's really the best way. And, um, you know, that's basically our hit parade, what I just went through, what exists today as we record this. Well, I am very grateful for you for having, um, chosen to use your life for this particular mission, raising the question. Because, uh, you know, again, without the question being raised, we're really just stuck with what we've already got, right? To me, a question is really a, a peek into a vision, a vision that may not be completely formed yet. Um, but 
if we don't look to the questions, we don't look to the vision, we're just going to keep doing what we've always been doing and, and getting making, what we've always gotten. And making our ability for tribes to work together is a common responsibility to all of us. You can't, I don't, I don't think you can really complain about the, all the tribalism if you're not yourself doing something about it. It's sort of what I tell myself, you know. I think that was a beautiful way to end this conversation. You're absolutely right. Daniel, thank you so much uh, for for engaging and, and, and entertaining my questions uh, today. It, it's been a deep conversation that um, I don't have all the time, and, but it is very enlightening. And, and I hope everyone listening has had as much fun and enjoyment and takeaways from this as I have. So thank you so much. Thank you. It was great to be here. It was an honor. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We're not just a podcast. We're a community. So before you go, we invite you to join the Consciouspreneur Mastermind community. We are a powerful movement of high achieving, impact focused entrepreneurs who are leading the charge, making the world a better place through business. We offer a comprehensive suite of tools, techniques, support, and direction all rolled up into a community driven inspirational launch pad. We will nudge you out of your comfort zone and into your genius zone so that you can lead your business with clarity and focus. If you're looking for a community of like-minded and like-spirited people who support your personal development and business growth, well, you found the right place. Plus, we have a lot of fun. After all, if you're not having fun, you're not doing it right. Remember, we're all in this together. Check out the link in the details in the description below and help our community grow by liking, subscribing, and sharing the content. We look forward to having you join us next week. Until then.